Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode 96 of Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast and happy holidays everybody, just happy holidays, no matter what you celebrate, no matter where you are in the world, any of that stuff, for those of you who are uh, Christmas minded, Merry Christmas, we're actually releasing this just before Christmas and this is no matter what faith you're from or what you practice or any of that sort of thing this is our Christmas present to you and I'm telling you right now it couldn't be better because what we're giving you is one of my favorite conversations that we've ever ever had on this show we have none other than from Shanana, the lineup that played at Woodstock the great Donnie York, who has been with Shanana from the very beginning of the band to the end, because they just called it quits this year, and guitarist Henry Gross, who played with the group at Woodstock in 1969. He was with the band for about eight or nine months, and then he went off to have a solo career, had a huge hit with a song in the 70s that you will all know called Shannon. We talk about all of that stuff. This is the beginning of a three-part, yes, three-part series, and I think you're going to love every second of it. It is a laugh riot, even though it starts off with Donnie being a bit sad about Shanana not going out on the road anymore. It does get really funny, and it does get really fun, and uh, you're going to love it. So without any further ado, here's part one of our three-part tribute to Shanana with none other than Donnie York and Henry Gross, probably my favorite interview we've ever done, certainly one of them, right here on Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast. Well, I'm going to say hello, everybody. I'm Donnie, and I'm in uh, suburban Richmond, Virginia. And you have hit the jackpot today, boys and girls, because you got not just me, not just Henry, but these very sophisticated questioners who are going to (laughs) examine us in places we've never been examined before. (laughs) (laughs) But the part I've been looking forward to actually is congratulating Henry on his splendid work. He's such... um, uh, a rival, but I wouldn't call him a rival. I'd call him more of an inspiration. It's like, why am I not doing this? And the idea of somebody who's actually taking the trouble still to do this, it takes, you know, it's one thing to have the uh, skill set and a few good songs. It's another thing to bother, to bother with doing what it takes to get it all ready to send to whatever fans exist out there. And that, that's, that's, that, why, Donnie, that's why I put a song on there called when the phone stops ringing. <laughs> I, I, I related. I did relate. <laughs> I will tell all of you here. I relate to when the phone stops ringing, but it's more like uh, when the, when no one, <laughs> when no one listens, when you sing, <laughs> it's tough. But I will get over it. The idea of um, being able to know that I will sing to an audience again sometime in the, you know, it's on my calendar. Henry still has that. There are several very profound differences comparing Henry to me. You guys can look at things that may be alike about us, but I think of the differences. I am not uh, able to easily know I will sing again to an audience. 
I'm um, denied that, I think, by the pandemic and whatever was made of it, um, or even what, whether we call it a pandemic or not. But that's my uh, burden. And I'm definitely um, sad. We're oh, sad, sorry. too, because we'd love to see you. Well, um, Annie, it's an interview, not a eulogy. Come on. I know. <laughs> really, thank you. Well said, my friend. I feel that, uh, yeah, that's good advice. And I'm uh, not meaning, meaning to eulogize my, uh, my career either, but, but I do miss that opportunity. And I, I've only learned things recently that I didn't know before. You learn about your fundamental motivations and things are easier to notice. And, and in my own case, I have the, the pleasure, frankly, of living shut in with this. I got the girl, whatever the <laughs> other, whatever the other shut in our guys ever got from their career. I got the girl. So I live shut in with her most of the time in the Virginia climate in the 67 degree uh, thermostat and enjoy myself. And uh, she's shy and probably won't come on camera, but um, she's within earshot, and <laughs> she knows she knows I'm inclined to tell people I was um, the one who uh, ended up being able to write a uh, um, book about, or not a book, a, an essay about uh, Pat Boone's career memoir that I helped put together, and. Because she took an interest in that, <laughs> and she has strange taste, but appropriate for me. Uh, that was the one reason she came to see a particular Sanana concert within three hours' drive of, of where we live here in Virginia. And um, that is the reason we met. And the reason I was the writer of Pat Boone's um, What About It article. Of course, traces to my being from Shanana. My being from Shanana opened certain doors and opened certain pathways. And I'm just embarrassed to talk right out loud about how lucky I feel for that to make me the one who got the girl. She's uh, everything you could ever want to be uh, living shut in with. And um, yeah. we do live mostly shut in because of her uh, autoimmune disease. When we're yeah. um, opening the door, we're letting um, ragweed pollen in. And uh, we keep the uh, the high tech uh, air purification running Darn here in the house. Starting to sound like a Paul Simon record. <laughs> I sound like a Paul Simon record. One hearts and bones, <laughs> for God's sake! There's something growing on my skin. Let these men ask you a question. <laughs> okay, I'll have well, to keep Donnie in line. I can we'll see that. Switch it happen. over. Try to sound more like I don't know. Rolling Stones record or something, but the idea of the uh, hmm, the the bother it takes to put an album together, Henry, and uh, have the songs, but also have the songs, but also bother to pass them around, and all the trouble that really does take. Um, you probably won't profit enough from it ever to be even a monetary thing, but a, a, as a thing to it be proud of. It wasn't a monetary thing in the first place. I'm old it's enough a thing to know to be, better. I've made, I've, I've recorded 500, 400 songs. So, you know, you, you do it for love, man. At this point, why do you do it? 
Four and others. 20 of which are on his new album, In My Own Sweet Time, Sweet time. available wherever yes. records are sold. We should, just his own we should stop talking and just play Henry's album. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. have been listening to that album to death. Yeah, me too. For like four, well, since it came out, you know, so it's September 16th, right? It came out. So my it's God. okay if I'm all over uh, choking in my throat trying to express my gratitude to henry it's okay if i'm that right. absolutely up. yeah i'm telling you okay so so let's go back to new york city to the kingsman absolutely. i am so willing so willing to let henry answer these questions somebody was I asking me about the kingsman because i wasn't in it <laughs> <laughs> well you're the best one to answer questions about the kingsman although no, i could, the question I could had speak been, to it but i can't answer you know i can't know the details Oh, you were at Brooklyn College while everybody else was in Columbia. You got a problem with that? (laughs) No, my mom went to Brooklyn College. I love Brooklyn College. You got a problem, huh? (laughs) Well, uh, these things are things that uh, the kid here from. No, I'm I'm the kid from Boise who uh, knows absolutely nothing of Brooklyn except where it is on the map and that I've been through it a time or two in various vehicles. And I've never really uh, known one street from another or people who grew up there and talked to each other about it. Um, they're talking right past me. That's okay, too. But my, my confession goes right into the heart of the question had been, um, was, was Henry uh, brought into uh, Shanana Elliot Kahn. By, by Elliot Kahn? And yeah. that's a question for me not to answer. I thought okay. it was Joe, I thought it was Elliot and Joe Witkin. We were all in a band together with some other guys from Columbia. Details. Uh, I'm listening. Yeah, yeah I had always we were in a band. We were playing. We had yeah. a group called called Orogeny, which uh, there was a guy yeah. called Peter Engel. Did you know Peter Engel, Donnie? I know the name, but not the uh, guy. He, was, he came up with this name. Joe and myself we were in this group called Orogeny, which, for those of you with addiction without a dictionary handy, is the forming of a crust on the earth following an earthquake. Don't ask me. I was from Brooklyn. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, we were playing these places like uh, Gertie's Folk City and, you know, the Gaslight Cat, all those cat places in Greenwich Village. And we were kind of a folky group, but we had great harmonies. And Joe and Elliot were roommates at one point at Columbia and uh, got involved in the what was the Kingsman. And, uh, you know, and and then they well to, to, to jump the shark here, they they did this concert on the steps of Low Library um, that I witnessed because they invited me to see it. They said I'd, I'd have a big laugh. So I did. And it was a great laugh. They thought uh, Donnie may know more about this than me, but I think they thought a few hundred people would show up and several thousand people showed up and uh, the place went berserk. I remember some professors dancing naked in the fountains with people. And it was just, it was a, you know, I like was like an unusual day at Columbia. Yeah. The debauchery <laughs> of that night is legendary. So, uh, but you know, the next day or a couple of days after um, somehow I was asked to join, I think <laughs> I'm not going to theorize as to why I'll leave that to Donnie, but anyway, we put this, made this, wrote this love letter to the fifties called Shanana. Did I miss much, Donnie? Maybe you can't tell it all. We'll be here till Tuesday. I mean, it's Tuesday. Next Tuesday. <laughs> I, I want to know if Aaron is with us and will speak. Yes, I am here, finally. Cut in whenever you Splendid. want, Aaron, because take control. Like Someone has to run this. Go on. Wow, I'm impressed, Henry. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a professional journalist. Let's go. Yep. Where are you from, Aaron? 
so I live uh, between Rochester and Syracuse, New York. I live in the Finger Lakes. Nice. I have friends up there. That's very beautiful up there. Yeah. yeah. You get yeah. to do the Gordon Lightfoot anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, not a bad he's thing. right across Lake on. Is he still in Toronto or? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think. He's yeah, I think so. It's nice just to be near Gordon, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> within a local call in some sense, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. the world is definitely nicer with Gordon Lightfoot in it. So, yes, God bless he's Gordon Lightfoot. One of the major leaguers, you know, he's fantastic. Down absolutely. Yeah. Do the people around Finger Lakes all sound? Do they speak with Aaron's accent? If if that's what it is, a, yeah, a dialect. Yeah. it's pretty Western New York. Yeah, very very interesting. Wow, of course. Being a journeyman rock star, you get to travel the world and see all the out-of-the-way places and the various um, regional dialects, if that's the word, are, are always uh, fascinating. And, and the fact that they're different in different places you wouldn't expect. So gratifying well, culture know. shock, move, move from New York to, to Nashville and, <laughs> yeah. and split your time in Florida. So, you there. know, so, you know, it's it, it, to me, you know, I, I mean, when I first moved to Nashville in 1986, I was bouncing off walls. I thought, are, are these guys kidding? Every, everything is running at, you know, at, at 33 and I'm on 78. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I came to find out that they were right. I was behaving like an idiot, running, bouncing and never stopping to live. And so I kind of got a, a different life, but a wonderful life from being in, in Tennessee and certainly in Florida. You know, because um, in New York, you know, it was a problem. I got, you know, you couldn't carry your guitar because you had to walk around like this, you know, with your hand up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's tough Different to carry time. anything. And you know, I want to tell you a story about a shot on our story. Because when I started rehearsing, we rehearsed in a building that no longer exists at Columbia called Ferris Booth Hall. And I moved to 100 and, was it, 16th and Broadway, right past Juilliard, I had an apartment with Elliot Kahn from Shanana, and we were in this building and we didn't have our keys all the time. So we would climb up the fire escape and open the window. Nobody said anything. It was really, we were two blocks from the Apollo Theater and, and it was incredible. Now I had gotten, it was in 1969, I had gotten my first car, which was a Volkswagen Bug, a 69 Bug. I'd saved up and I, it was $2,000, which was a lot of money then. It was a fortune. And it had a Blaupunkt radio in it. <laughs> The night oh, I parked blau it. It had a blau punk the night I parked it. <laughs> I came back from a rehearsal. This is true. I'm walking down the street, but we're uh, coming home from Ferris Booth. I'm walking up the street and I pass a car, a, a similar blue uh, 69 bug. And it's, <laughs> it's on four orange crates. And the front is open. You know, you could break that little triangle window and open the right. field of spare but not only take the spare they took the back seat and the battery they as long as they had the back seat out to get the battery they took the seat too so i walked by the car and i said to myself god this guy's they really dashed this guy and i went a little further and i went wait a minute that's my car. <laughs> i was my car now, i am that guy now wait this is true as fate would have it underneath the building we were living in was a little place in a basement with a pan-painted sign, I make no joke, it said, Miguel, flats fixed. And I bought back almost all the stuff out of my car. And then 
if you pushed the car down the hill, I think it was the one that ran into the West Side Highway, whatever it was, 96th Street, where Ed lived, good goal. And, and we pushed the car and the car wound up in a Volkswagen repair shop. It was kismet, destiny. Incredible. And there's the most boring story you'll ever hear about Shanana. So, <laughs> Ten, tangentially about no, Shanana. that's a great story. Buying back the stuff they stole. I mean, right <laughs> under my apartment. You can't, New York, service, 24 hours. You can't do question for henry you your first band was the auroras when you were 13 yeah we started a band in my in in, in uh, my freshman year at midwood high school alma mater to woody allen and uh and and uh, Among we others. played yeah many others and we played at uh the new york world's fair and i have a film it was my first time i i was i always liked comedy because my father had a very uh, dark sense of humor when his, his dad had died whenever we visited his father's grave. He would, uh, we'd pass these, on the way across the cemetery, we'd pass these beautiful limestone ma mausoleum buildings. And my dad would never fail to point to those buildings and say to me, those guys really know how to live. He <laughs> <laughs> was, he was, you know, it was that type of, of humor. So I, I liked comedy and, and I liked music. So when we played, at the World's Fair, we were playing the New Jersey Pavilion, which was odd because we were all from Brooklyn. 
And, <laughs> and every, we were doing this song called Ferry Cross the Mersey from Jerry yeah. and the Postman. Oh, yeah, Man. sure. And mm -hmm. I kept singing, so ferry to New Jersey. And everybody in the band was throwing stuff at me and they were mad at me. And I, <laughs> so I only did it over and over. Because <laughs> we were there for, and I have a film of it, uh, of me, of the band. And I have the velour, you remember velour shirts with the high? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I had they, the buzz cut haircut, you know, because uh, I was still, you know, see, in Shanana, Donnie probably bought clothes to wear for Shanana. I wore the clothes I wore in high school. Right. <laughs> I had those Flag Brothers shoes, you know, with the, you know, with the heels this high, you know. I, so, I think it, I think it's Donnie that has uh, when when you the, the earliest shot that Michael Wadley got of Shanana on stage at uh, at Woodstock. Uh, the first person he closes in on is Donnie. Yeah, well, Donnie's there, mom combing his hair. You know, like, <laughs> such a great shot. <laughs> Donnie had mom. Didn't you have mom and your mom? Heart? Yes, yes, Donnie. Uh, you did. I remember because, that. You all the time. Yes, because I had to. I mean, it was the the trite <laughs> thing to have on your arm. You were. Uh, this was the sixties. Guys were not uh, pumping iron and getting muscular. Guys were not getting a lot of tattoos. Guys were not. But Dan Lurie. The yeah, ball. well, <laughs> don't let them kick sand it's, in your face, Don. <laughs> it's, it's too late. It's too late. Aaron's too young for that joke. No, you don't remember those comic books. In the back, they had this guy. Uh, he was Charles like Mr. Universe, and and he would. And the ad was on the yeah. beach. Don't let them kick sand in your face. They showed some guy with a girl. They're kicking sand in his face, and I thought, mm -hmm. I don't want sand kicked in my face. So I bought this some kind of powder or something. And look at the idiot I became. It was all because of that powder. I should have had a protein drink. I think it was approved by Black and Decker. <laughs> okay, let me ask you guys and lady, what do you call a magician who loses his magic? What? No, no clue. Ian. Thank you. <laughs> she had the answer. I the answer him. was there. The answer was right there. See, that's <laughs> anyway. Okay, we can back. To like, what do you call a fish with no eyes? Hmm? What do you call a fish with no eyes? A fish. <laughs> Got it. See, okay. Be see, I've been <laughs> jokes here, and I'm and I've been on the road for forty years. <laughs> Before were, we were recording, we were talking about your show, your one-hit wanderer show. Yeah. Oh, well, that's yeah, that's my uh, sort of. Uh, story of uh, what what is you know it's it's the biography it's the basic biography of an f-list celebrity <laughs> an f-list yeah. celebrity i, yeah, I just not... uh, I, I missed all the part i missed all the part between your uh, telling me why you couldn't stay in shanana on the uh, tour well, bus in well, front of the columbia campus gate on the tour bus we were getting ready to go on tour in and uh, you were telling me, as you were indebted to sort of tell all of us uh, that you were going to be leaving the group. We needed to get a new guitar player. Uh, my dose of that uh, is memorable, but we we sort of import our own false memories, too. Like, I still thought that I came home from the Woodstock Festival back to New York City 
uh, riding with you in your in your Volkswagen Beetle, Henry. No, and that did not happen. That did not that happen. Was, that was one of those false memories you hear yeah. about. And I experienced one officially. I could have sworn. I mean, I was going with that story. That was my 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 narrative yeah. for for decades. I mean, and, I can just tell you this: there's no chance I would have taken that car to the Woodstock Festival after what happened on 123rd. Yes, the, the, the story, the story you already told. Yeah, that, well, Donnie, that's really let's remarkable. Let's so, ask some questions. And, and so oh, that was their, their that was their that was their uh, plot uh, coming into this. And I, I should try to thwart yeah. it as much as I can, because we, we really risk being exposed a lot. Yeah, we yeah. Jack has the little lamp, you know, like he puts you under the lamp and says, no, 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 talk. So, you know, one thing I wanted to ask, and, and this has always intrigued me because prior to Sha Na Na, the only band that I know of that was doing 50s repertoire was um, the Mothers of Invention, Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. And they were only doing it like a few songs a show, but then people would go crazy for it. And I always wondered if anybody in Shanana had ever seen them do that. I was just curious. I hadn't. I'd seen the mothers in that place they were in on wasn't McDougal Street, but it was near Garrick, the, the Garrick, Garrick Theater. The Garrick Theater. Yeah, I'd oh. seen them there, but I hadn't. Uh, I hadn't seen them do that. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I. That's like the holy grail of all you know Zappa related events. You know, is that that two month stand at the Garrick Theater? I, I heard conversation about it from different guys in college but i um uh, i don't recall like for one thing did they did they uh dress the part and grease their hair and do elaborate hairdos oh no no they were still uh, dirty gross and ugly as frank would say <laughs> yes good for them good for them um <laughs> Uh, I, I have Brooklyn envy uh, deep within me. A lot of Brooklyn envy when you guys are talking about these various. Uh, really, the next time I see you, Donnie, I'll stab you. <laughs> Thank you. Or at least send them a piece of cheesecake from Juniors. From Juniors, oh, right? Didn't they? Did they take that thing? I haven't been there. Did they take that down to put up the hmm. Barclays Center? They might have. No, it's across the street oh, from the Barclays the street. Center. Although they're talking about moving it, but they also opened up a couple in Manhattan. It's a big juniors is a big place now. Oh, they had one. In, they had one in Brooklyn near Sheepshead oh. Bay. I, I mean, again, I could talk on. I could tell you a funny story about that. You wouldn't. Very funny. Uh, oh, okay, no, I, I want to hear it. I want, I want to tell it. You, you, these you are Brooklyn have, like, so this is a real story. My aunt went to get a free. They give you a free. Uh, whatever they call banana Sunday, whatever, one of those big banana float things or whatever. You know, yeah, yeah. Sundays, what do they call them they, uh, on your birthday? Right. You, they would give you a free, uh, not an ice cream sundae, you know, the big plate ice cream, whatever it was called. Yeah, yeah, boats. Sure. yeah whatever. So they give you that on your birthday. So my aunt goes there. She takes a few people in her family. She drives up and there's a kid standing out in front of the place. This is Brooklyn with like, you know, a little red jacket on with a couple of buttons. And she gives him the keys to the car, you know, goes into the place, has a nice to you know, hold his meal and dessert on that on, on juniors. And uh, and then she goes out to get her car and she's looking for the valet. And so she asked the place, she says, I don't see the valet. I gave the valet my keys. And like, we don't have a valet. <laughs> she gave the keys to our car to some wise kids standing on the street. And he took it to the Bronx and they chopped it. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny. I mean, you have to understand how crazy it was living in, at the, there at that time. 
Speaking, one, one other question about Brooklyn. A Brooklyn icon got you into music. Gil Hodges. <laughs> well, he didn't get me into music. <laughs> okay. How it happened. I mean, I, I lived a couple of blocks on these long streets. He was off Ocean Park. He was on Bedford Avenue. I was on 28th okay. Street. So and he would walk to this church called Big Catholic Diocese in my corner called Our Lady Help the Christians. At that time, it was the biggest Catholic church in, in I think, in New York. And uh, it was a whole block of rectories and, uh, you know, uh, I'm forgetting all that. But anyway, it, they had the schoolyards there and they had, you know, um, convent and rectory and all this stuff was on the block. And Gil would pass my house occasionally. He'd walk around the block my way to get to the church and he would see me sitting playing guitar on the stoop and he'd walk up and ask me, he'd sit down and all the kids in the neighborhood would see him sit down. And I, you know, I was like, wow, you know, Gil Hodges is talking to Henry. You know, how did he pull this? Anyway, so he'd ask me, so what'd you learn? And so, you know, you don't want to be a jerk when Gil Hodges is around, you know, so yeah. you keep practicing. So then you didn't even know if he'd show up again, but when he did and he'd say, oh, you're getting better. And he'd say someday, you know, he was very, very, very encouraging. The thing I remember about Gil, aside from everything else, was that his hands yeah. were huge. Yeah. He, he didn't need a yeah. mitt. <laughs> I mean, this, my, this my dad guy, said the same thing. His hands were he bigger. finally got in the Hall of Fame, and I'm glad his wife uh, lived to see that. She, yeah, she just yeah. passed the other day. She did. Yeah. Well, at least she got to see that. after. Yeah. Well, it was such a disgrace that he wasn't in there. I mean, it's... Just, yeah. oh, he should have been in a lot. I'm a huge sports fan. He should have been in a lot earlier than he was. He had I, one I, bad I, World Series. Yeah. And, and for that, they they pitchforked him for the rest of his life. It was just, yeah. you know, tough yeah. business. And Donnie, and Donnie, if I could ask a question, you alluded to it earlier about Pat Boone. You have written articles about Pat Boone, you feel he belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Could you share that your insights working with him and how you feel about him? Yeah, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame needs Pat Boone more than Pat Boone needs a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's really, um, well, my resentment about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I guess, uh, to be personal since I've already told you how sad I am and all the, the, this, the, the, the Donnie couch therapy, uh, I, I keep it on, <laughs> keep it coming here. We're here. And uh, I'll tell you some more about how sad I am, but the, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was my idea. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they expropriated it and gave me no credit. And worse than that, they never sued me. So I could not monetize it. I wanted them to sue me. Anyway, I, I, I wrote that song on a road trip in 1970 and mothballed it. And then I brought it out and we did it on TV in 1978, I guess it was. And the, um, the Hall of Fame got sort of started in 1985, sort of. Yeah. And, and so I always felt they kind of, they ripped me off, man. And I could never monetize it. And I was... Um, uh, I wasn't. I was even turned down on my pitch for the the um, theme song for the uh, broadcast, uh, rumored to be an annual thing that would be on TV like the Emmys from now on. And I believed that for five, ten minutes. They turned me down. They were going with someone in house. That sort of a thing, routine uh, Hollywood uh, rebuke, and. 
Uh, let me think now. I lived in Hollywood longer than I lived in uh, anywhere near Brooklyn. And this Brooklyn envy is based on knowing that maybe Ed Goodgold, Shannon's original manager and a dear uh, soul for Henry and me and other guys, I'm sure if we got opinions from original Kingsman and the like, um, the same um, avenues and uh, landmarks and whatnot were, were things that you grew up uh, in that same habitat and you kind of knew where that was. I, I think I missed all of that. And as a kid from Idaho without a car, living in the dormitory, I could be in cap, well, in the, the prison grounds of the Columbia campus and not even know um, how much I didn't know about what was outside those uh, walls. They weren't exactly walls to keep me in, but the, the fear of flunking out of school kept me in. <laughs> so I was very, um, oh, cloistered and not uh, at all worldly when uh, the moment came to be looking for a real guitar player to uh, have me in this sensational act that we were trying to uh, um, bring uh, into being from um, our, you know, to, to make that our summer job. It was yeah. the end of my sophomore year and it was go back home to Boise for three months working in the post office or something, or uh, believe the, uh, oh, we'll make you stars overnight sort of things we were occasionally hearing. And we did have this act and we were doing, <laughs> we were doing fun songs and the, the songs were so fun and the basic idea was so fun and the audience was so um, ready-made that we didn't, yeah, I ain't going home to Boise. I'm going to stick around with these guys and we're going to become stars. It might take more than, than two months, but we got three months until <laughs> school starts again. It was, it was that sort of mentality and it was a lot of fun. And um, we, we found um, our, our inspiration from the older brother of one of the King's men, as you've probably learned George some, some of you. Well, <clears throat> Rob Leonard's older brother, George. Yes. Was, was, was the one who came to one of our performances where we did a lot of oldies. And he, he saw the audience reaction, um, came to our next rehearsal, saying, you guys, I got an idea. You got to do this. What you got to do is you got you to get real electric guitars and, and drums and, and do a real rock band. <laughs> and don't be in your blazers anymore doing, doing uh, doo-wop with acoustic guitars. <laughs> be greasers doing it with loud drums and noisy <laughs> guitars. And, and uh, the, the, the guys that were enjoying you so much there at that uh, little beer hall the other night, those, those frat boys that you were, you know, humbling yourselves to send to in your blazers, um, are the, are the uh, uh, well, they're that sector of a multi-sector, but same age, all the, all the people of that age group had a whole lot of things that were bringing them apart and, and the, the anti-war 60s were well underway. This was 19, what was it, 69? It was tense. There was a lot of tension in the air. The previous year at Columbia had been the infamous uh, student riots where yep. the, um, the yeah. campus was shut down. 
So this was exactly a year after that. And it was, um, it was something everybody had in their background, wherever they were from and whatever, whatever their ethnicity, if they grew up in the United States, what they all had in their personal background was the rock and roll that was on the radio when they were going through junior high or whatever age they were to be remembering this stuff as stuff that was once on the radio. And they remembered that. And, you know, they might be really okay with the Beatles now. And, um, and yet, wow, (laughs) they don't mind hearing uh, just one more time, the Dell Vikings, you know, it was, uh, it was um, that, that mentality that was uh, surprisingly um, uniform throughout our age group. And, and that ready-made audience was looking for us. And uh, we were glad to show up. See, I saw it a bit differently than that, Donnie. I, I, seriously, I saw it. It's not a joke. I saw it that a lot of the kids that liked us, I mean, I was in the group for a while, I don't know, like seven, eight months, whatever it was. But I thought that the kids who were coming to the show did not. They were too young to experience doo-wop and the original R&B. I thought that they came in with the Beatles. 
and that they missed their older brother liked it and they missed it and they wanted to share it. I thought that was more of it because I felt at times, whether it was true or not, that several people in, in Shanana had never heard that music before. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, and the only reason I had heard it because I was born in 51. And the only reason I'd heard it is that, um, you know, it was, I, my mother was very musical. She you know, was a serious musician and my, uh, but my sister was a couple of years older and had those records. And the first, we had Elvis's greatest hits on RCA yes. in 1957. And I knew that stuff by heart. And I had our record collection had all the records Sean and I ever thought of doing in it. So I yes. knew those songs, but a lot of the guys <laughs> didn't know those songs, which on a, was a little, I didn't really think they knew them. I thought they heard them when it was time to, when they needed to. But I thought that the younger people were intrigued by what their older siblings had gone through. I thought that was a big part of it. That was my take. Oh yeah, that was a big part of it. And I'm um, um, sure we were already <laughs> capturing a, a, a growing audience, a different audience. Uh, you you um, joined in the summer. I don't know when you first attended a rehearsal and rehearsed as one of us, but it was probably June of 69. May or was June, it, May or June. May or June, okay. And uh, behold, we were at Woodstock in August. Right. And, and my, my big question, you guys have your big questions and I, I know you have your things that you intend to be asking and I will, I will try to talk less except when called upon. But my, <laughs> my, my, big, question, my big question is between the uh, moment on the, tour bus telling me that uh, you were not going to stay in Shanana and the moment you were um, a resident, well, uh, yeah, resident of Nashville and headed toward um, um, a career. Um, no, I stayed in New York, Donnie. I didn't go to Nashville until 1986. I mean, so, other than to visit and do shows or something. In 1986. So the career that you found, you found in New York City. Oh, in New York. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you didn't find it in Nashville. My, my, my well, I had other was, things in Nashville. I wrote songs that went on the country charts and things. But I, but I uh, was working when I was in New York. See, it was a funny thing for me because I was in Brooklyn College. My dad was a pharmacist, um, wanted me to be a doctor. And so when Shanana started, I told, he asked me what I was doing. I said, I come in this another group. And he went, oh, you're throwing your life away. <laughs> you're wasting life. Then, then the group is successful. And I watched, you know, I'm watching Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock, who I knew from before. And I see him do this music, especially the Star Spangled Banner. And I thought he's making music only he can make. I need to make music only I can make. And so I'm, I'm kind of thinking, so I tell my father I'm leaving. Well, now the group is very well known. It's big. And, yeah. he, and I tell him I'm leaving. And he says, don't be an idiot. <laughs> no matter which way I turned, I was an yes. idiot. You know, you couldn't please this guy. I joined the band, he hated it. I left the band, he hated it. So, you know, it was, <laughs> it's a true story. You got to love life. It's your ticket to stardom. It's your ticket to stardom. I lived lived out in in Concord, in Mainid, outside of Boston. I I know. I'm up in Connecticut, so yeah. Put all the kids in the car and head straight to the Golden (laughs) Hatches. I know all about it. (laughs) Elliot Conbra, that uh, with with him, whenever, uh, I I assume it was the summer months when you were uh, playing clubs with Elliot Conn, the kid from 
suburban Boston. Uh, it was earlier. I mean, we were, I graduated from high school in January and we had been, uh, Whitkin, Joe Whitkin and I were in bands when we were in, in Midwood High School. Yeah. Um, Joe Whitkin was in bands. We were in bands together with this other guy who was a drummer and we played, uh, I think there might've been more people. In fact, Joe Whitkin had a band called The Phenomenon. And when I, when I was a freshman at Midwood High School, he was a couple of years ahead of me. And, uh, and, and he had this band and they played in some cafeteria room. And I remember the guys in the band and I remember listening to him and thinking, this is the, what, this is a, these are great musicians. These guys are really good. And Joe Whitkin, who went to the MD PhD program and the six year program at Albert Einstein, um, yeah. was one of those guys that would, I'd be doing my homework, I'd be getting ready for an SAT test or something. I remember this and they, you know, that they put the pyramid up with all the bricks. Sure. You know, know how yeah. many bricks are in the pyramid. And I would be sitting there like, you know, I'd still be sitting there. And, and Whitkin walks by and he goes, and he gives me the answer. And I, I hated him. <laughs> I mean, I'm still, we're still friends. And I talked to him very recently, but, but, but I mean, I hate him. He's too smart. And you know, his, yes. mom, his mom is almost a hundred years old. She helped, I think, isolate DNA at Princeton. I mean, this guy, I mean, she's yeah. still alive. Yes, she is. God marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Yeah, I, I spoke to her not, not long ago. Oh. And his brother, unfortunately, uh, his brother died in, in a scuba accident. But uh, it was horrible. But Joe is oh. Joe leaves Shanana. What does he do? He's a doctor. He's working in the yeah. emergency room. But he runs a show band, like a twelve-person show band, and they do a bunch of oldies. He should have could have stayed with Joe. <laughs> what was the point? You know. But I, I don't know. He's he's a great. He's one of those guys. First guy I ever met. There was like a little Brian Wilson. You know, he would hear, like we would hear that song, it's summertime, summertime, summer, summer, summertime. Well, we had four-part harmony and Whitkins found the fifth part. There was a fifth part, but he heard it. Only those people that were seriously gifted would hear that there was something missing in that, some tension missing in that chord. And Whitkin would simply point it out and I would simply hate him more. <laughs> And not only that, at the, I love the guy. He's, he's really show, brilliant. He wore Even at the, the rehearsal, he wore on stage at Woodstock. At the rehearsal for the thing for the get whatever it was the reunion. Yeah, he was yeah. great then. He was on the piano, and everybody had fun. He was the centerpiece at the piano, and this guy never ordered the clams. You know what I mean? I never heard him play a bad note. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he's he's just a great guy. And in fact, I was playing at something in uh, where he lives in San Diego. That's mm -hmm. some big deal that they have this some big festival like a year or two ago. Yeah. And Joe play. I, normally I just, they have a backup band. It was Bowser's rock and roll party. Oh, so in fact, I'm doing it on December 17th at uh, uh, Ruth Eckert theater in Clearwater. We do it every year. Peter Noon's on the show. Joey D. I think yeah. this year is Gary us bonds. Me, myself, Johnny Cantardo will be on the show. Johnny's Johnny's wonderful singer. And yeah, uh, and Bowser, of course, and uh, there might be other people on the show, but I don't know yet. But anyway, what was I going to? I was going to tell you something about that, and of course now. <laughs> well, time out. Talking while about I cry. <laughs> Do you know? Back you forget my... where you're going at our age. But but what worries me most is when I, you know, you walk in a room and you forget why you went in there. But yeah. there's but there's a toilet in there, and you still can't remember. <laughs> you That's a problem. <laughs> that is a problem.
You had mentioned Brian Wilson. Uh, Aaron is a big Beach Boys fan, and she wanted to ask you. Why not? Hey. Hey, I did many shows with the Beach Boys. The first one was at the University of New Hampshire in 1972. They had Blondie Chapin and Ricky Fittar. Mm-hmm. Great lineup. And they had done that, just put out that live record with those guys. Yeah. Right. Beach Boys concert record, some kind. And I'm a huge Beach Boys fan. I mean, I was one of the people that really loved Pet Sounds when it came out. You know, you know <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the kids would they wanted more cars, you know, at the at, at the hop song, <laughs> car song. More hard yeah. songs. You know, <laughs> songs about car parts and pink, pink. I got the pink slip daddy. You know, I that, I never liked that stuff. I liked in my room and, you know, what good is the done and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, Girl, don't tell me. Oh, lovely. I like yeah. this woman. I like this woman. Don't get him started. Yeah. yeah. Please, please let me wonder. Another yep. amazing, yeah. beautiful. Well, you, you, let you, him you, run wild. Yes. There well, you go. Fab, these not only were they great songs, but what you learn is that it's the record business and great songs don't always translate to great records. And, you know, that, that's why I work very hard on these records I'm doing because I want the arrangement to be one version that's really legitimate. There's a billion versions you could do. But the Beach Boys always had Brian and he had this gift. I mean, I, it, it may be the gift that drove him over the edge because of all that pressure, which is, you know, that's the deal when you want to be in show business. Yeah. If you plan on not having a nervous breakdown, you know, go, yeah. in, go into a different business, you know, sell shoes. Although, I don't know, maybe <laughs> I mean, that's not fair because that's a tough that's But, you know, I don't know what business is easy, but show business is really tough because you have no, you can't assume tomorrow. In life, you can't in general. But in show business, you can't assume that your job will be waiting for you in 20 minutes from when you leave the stage. So. Right. It's just an odd thing. It's you have to be a person who feels basically doesn't fit in, you know, a person who isn't afraid to juggle balls, hoping they'll land right. There's no reason to believe they will. But there's also faith is a beautiful thing. And youth is the is a great holder of faith. You know, when you're young, you never think about the the negatives. You think about the positives. The world is yours and anything is possible. It's when you get older that you, you know, for my case, I still feel anything is possible, but I see that the world around me has decided I'm an old fart. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, that you know, is, it's, not, it's not up to me. I'm making, records. I'm making yeah. the same. I working harder than I did when I was, when I was, uh, you know, 1920 making my, or 18, I was eight, the youngest guy in the group and Sean and I was 18. We made yeah. the record yeah. and with Artie Rippen. And, and, you know, I work just as hard now as I did then or not way harder because I'm by myself and working with a guy who is like a Brian Wilson a guy <laughs> called John McLean, but I could do a whole show on him. Yeah. I mean, but, but anyway, so 
the Beach Boys. So I'm, I played with the Beach Boys. You'll love this. Here's a story you, that, that you will absolutely love. I, of course, was always the biggest fan of Carl, not just because he sang God Only Knows, which was, you know, my favorite thing they ever did. Me too. But, um, but I was a big fan of them because Carl was almost my age. He was only a couple mm -hmm. years older than me. So we're playing the new, I, I go out in the new University of New Hampshire. I had three guys, a bass player, a drummer, and another guitar player. And myself, and we went out and this, I had, a, I mean, I was, I was not losing this gig. I mean, I did a gig <laughs> to remember. I mean, I tore them, I tore that place up. And so in the intermission before they went on, Carl came into my dressing room, which to me was like, I thought it was hallucinating. There's Carl Wilson. And, you know, there's that California voice, you know, you know, well, you know, Henry. And it had that sound that, that he sounded like, which was amazing. And uh, he was really a wonderful spiritual kind of person. Well, he invites me into the Beach Boys dressing room. So now I'm going in the dressing room. You know, Blondie and Ricky were really easy to meet. But the Beach Boy guys, you know, the other guys, Jardine and, of course, Dennis. Was, and uh, no, Dennis was not there at that gig. That was later on. Uh, Jardine was there. And, of course, Mike Love. And, yeah. uh, and so this is it's just so crazy. So. Carl's in his dressing room doing what I always did for my band. He's got this giant tuning fork. Now, Donnie will remember this. There's a big, they made these tuning forks. It's like the size of a hammer. And, and you would tune, you put it on your guitar and it'd go beep at A440 and you tune all the strings to it. Now I had a good ear. So I would tune all the guys or the instruments for the guys in my band. So I never really had a break in, when we do a shows like in clubs around the country. I would be tuning their guitars as soon as I go to a stage. So I did. So I didn't sound like an idiot when I went out to the next set. So Carl is doing this for the beach boys. Cause he has a good ear. <laughs> now in Shanana, yes. we got the first con strobe tuner. I don't know who got it, but we had a con strobe tuner that you plugged your guitar, you know, which everybody takes for granted yes. now, but this was sure. the first one. It was a Brown one. Later on, they had a black casing. This was a Brown one. And it opened, the front opened up. Well, anyway, I had it in my dressing room when, you know, so, but I was in Carl's room and Carl's going, hey, going, could you guys keep it down? Shut up. Would you shut up? I got to tune these. And I said, wait a minute, Carl, wait a minute. You don't have to do this. And so I went, I said, I'll be back in a minute. This is like out of a cartoon. So I brought the, the tuning machine in and said, give me the guitar. And I showed him and they stood there like the apes when the plane crashes, the glistening metal object in the Tarzan picture. And they all gather around the plane that crashed, you know, and they're watching this. They're going, what? What is happening here? He's tuning the guitar, the machine, tuned all the guitars in like two minutes. The next night, we picked up the show at Hofstra in Long Island, which was a long drive from New Hampshire for me, but they had a plane. And get to the gig and they had four stroke tuners lined up in their dressing room. It's nice to be in the beach boys. Hey. It's good to be the kid. Anyway, that's a, maybe that story is more amusing for guitar fans, but that was the first, those stroke tuners weren't always around. People take that for granted. You used to have to play and sing to get the job and sure. you had to be able to tune your instrument. Well, it, it's, <laughs> it's funny. And, well, it's funny because um, I watched this show uh, on YouTube called the JHS show and it's this guy, Josh Scott, and he makes guitar pedals. That's what he does. And he also collects a lot of vintage gear and vintage pedals and stuff. And he had one of those con tuners 
And he said, here, look at this thing. And he opens the thing up and he's like, you know, that people actually used to, you know, like you'd get this big thing and then they'd tune it up and then he holds up the cord and he's like, and it's got a little power cord in case you want to die. He said, I forgot that. Yeah, it is. Just, just, to, just to prove the point. I may not always love you. But love oh, wow. And we're in bitch. <laughs> You'll never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me. Come on, Donnie. Oh, laugh. Still go on, believe me. The world could show nothing to me. So what good would living do me? God knows what yes. And these songs, we know the melodies and the words. And my goodness, it is, yeah. Stop, stop. It's, it's painful. We're, we're too easy. We're too easy. We're too easy. I mean, this, that is no. the greatest moment in the history of this show. Oh, we've never had so it's a we show about said, music. We've never had someone I, perform. I, I, remember Carl, you know, just for Carl. Yeah, yeah for Carl. What an amazing person. And I never would have written Shannon if not for Carl, you know. Well, it's about his dog. Yeah. Well, I was having lunch in his house. I mean, I, I make it sound like we were, you know, that, that was a regular thing. It wasn't at that point. I was doing a midnight special or something in Los Angeles. And Carl this was in Los me. Angeles. Yeah. And Carl invited me to his house. He was in Coldwater Canyon. And he was just up the street from the Beverly Hills Hotel. He did. And I, it was the nicest house I'd ever been in. It was one of those U-shaped houses with the pool in the middle. And he had jukeboxes and yeah. Stratocasters and great instruments. You know, he's in, in the damn Beach Boys, you know. So he was, a, he was great. And so we, he had this nice spread laid out. And as I say in my one hit wonder show, I'll never know what it tasted like uh, because his two giant husky dogs jumped up, <laughs> got just 86 <laughs> to the table. I mean, just everything on the floor, ate everything, ate all the hamburgers, whatever we were having, ate, just ate it all, inhaled it. <laughs> and, and he was so nice. Uh, he couldn't, Carl couldn't stop apologizing. I said, Carl, don't worry about it. I have a crazy Irish setter at home called Shannon. And I've seen this performance many times. He, and he, and as soon as I said that, he got really sad and he told me that he had a dog, which I remembered as, a, as an Irish setter, which actually was a Samoyed. And um, although there was some question of that at one point, but anyway, it was a Samoyed because Billy Hinchy told me, the late Billy Hinchy, I spoke to him before he passed. I'd done his show. His, his <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I told him I had this, my Shannon and he said he loved this dog so much, was hit by a car. It ran out into the you know, road and got killed. And his dog was called Shannon. So when I got back to New York, I'm sitting in my apartment and I'm thinking about Carl and what a great time we had and all this. And, uh, and my Shannon is sitting on the bed. And uh, I lived in an apartment in Queens that was mostly a, a, a Latino building at this time. It was, you know, all Spanish. And, and it was great. People were great. I mean, I could rehearse my rock and roll band with martial amps in my apartment and nobody said anything. But if they were partying till six, seven in the morning and you said something, you better bring 
an army with you because yep. they didn't they that they didn't do the right to party came way before that guy that had the hit on it you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> i want to tell you it was it, it was definitely in that culture before and so i couldn't it was very hard for me to write songs because from upstairs in my apartment this guy had big speakers on the floor and i would hear <laughs> all day long it would drive me mad so i thought this is funny so how could you stop that noise how could you think well I was talking to somebody, but I said, you know what you need to get is an environments record of the ultimate seashore. So they had these environments. <laughs> so so it's all true. I put on the ocean and I'm listening to the seashore. It's called the ultimate seashore. You can still get it. And, and so I'm listening to it <laughs> and I pick up. Uh, you, you can bootleg it. Another room. And I start. <laughs> Why pay money? <laughs> no, I mean, this you is can all download like, it. You can download it for free. <laughs> so, so, you know, yeah. So, right. So, so I'm sitting there and the ocean's going and I start going. Doesn't that sound like a beach song? It mm -hmm. does. And then Jimmy I start Buffett, eat your heart out. Carl mm. and the whole thing. And, and I swear this song. You know, when writers say they didn't write a song that, you, you know, sometimes you get handed one. This thing took like 15 minutes and all of a sudden I'm going, another day is here. Wow. And just so, like that. And just to prove the point. Now we know. He's gone. You see? Yeah. But Save um, me. so this thing just kind of fell out of my head and I didn't really know what I was saying when I wrote it down. And I was taping it. Now, this is another bit of nostalgia for you from the old days. They made Sony invented the cassette machines and they came in. The first Sony cassette machines were in a box like a size of a shoe box. Yep. And it had these big buttons on the end of it. So I put a cassette in and I, and I taped it when I wrote it. And it almost I think I changed two, maybe two lines in the song. And, you know, I'm not that nobody's that good to write a song that will touch people. It just falls out of you. Those are honest moments. And a lot of writers will tell you that, you know, if, if I could do it, I would have done it 50 more times. Of course, there was a, a thing called the business that got in between people hearing your song and something else. But it was a great moment for me. And anyway, I sent, I made a tape when it was done. I made the first tape of the song on that, on a cassette and a new cassette and mailed it to Carl. And I said, man, you don't you know, you, this is such a great song for you to sing. Wow. And, and I didn't hear from him. And this is, this is interesting because you want to know about Carl. So this is interesting. So I sent it to him. I didn't hear from him. And I waited and waited, you know, and I tried to get hold and couldn't. Well, this was so before email. It. This was in the days when we mail things with yeah, stamps. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah, I still do. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the letters don't get there, but I still mail them. But um, so I sent it to Carl and, and, I, and, and I didn't see him. Now, Shannon's a huge hit. And again, I'm out in California doing Wolfman Jack's Midnight Special. And the Beach Boys, oh no, I go to SIR to rehearse for the show. And the Beach Boys are in, in the big room at Studio Instrument Rentals when they had that tour with the big boat. You know, they had a big boat on stage. Right. Boat. Anyway, that was one of the big tours yep. in 76. So in the, in the interim, when I had written the song and sent it to Carl, um, you know, I had cut it and it was, it was you know, it, it went everywhere. It just exploded. And so I saw Carl at this rehearsal and he came over to me and I'll never forget what he said. And I remember it verbatim. He said, Henry, I heard your song on the radio and it sounded so much better than that tape you sent me. 
<laughs> now I stood there like George mm. Burns without the cigar. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, this is mad. You know, but then, okay, now here's the hook. Here's the punchline. A friend of mine, Robert White Johnson, who's written a million hits for Lover Boy, and he wrote Celine Dion's first hit, Where's My Heartbeat Now? Robert's a dear friend of mine and a great man. And, and uh, just as lovely a man as you could meet. And, and Roger, was, uh, Robert, Robert White was writing with, we have to call him Robert White because there's 800 Robert Johnsons. There's no, there's one from Memphis. And then there's the guy that the blues sing, it's endless. Yeah. Robert Johnson's like, you know, Joe Smith, there's too many. So he, uh, he's, he's working in a studio in Nashville called The Castle, which was like an old castle built by Al Capone's guys to hide out when they were hide, they hid out in a castle in Nashville. It's called The Castle. Now, yeah. these mobsters thought they wouldn't be noticed in, in, amidst the farmhouses in a castle. <laughs> and you have to love life. The idiocy of life cannot be duplicated. So, so they're in this studio called The Castle, which is a great room. And Robert is in there. He's written a couple of songs with Carl, and they're making demos of these songs. And they were there for like two, three weeks making demos of songs. And, and then it hit me when I came in there to see him you know, a couple of times. I went... Of course, Carl didn't hear the tape. He never heard a demo in his life. They went in and cut with the, with a wrecking crew. I mean, yeah. he had Hal Blaine sitting there, and you know, and they, he didn't get a guy in a guitar. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't hear the backgrounds. He he that was Brian's job, you know. And that was very funny. And I said to myself, "Of course, he didn't cut it. What am I, an idiot?" And also. I, I, of course, I knew that the Beach Boys at the, never Beach. did outside material other than <laughs> like rock and roll music. And, you know, right after I pitched him the song, Brian reappeared with 15 big ones. Ah, and, yes. And so they had that hit on rock and roll music. And he had that song, Johnny Carson, which I thought was very funny. And I love yeah. comedy songs, you know. All right. So Donnie's on. I've talked myself out. Go ahead. <laughs> one, one last thing about Channing. You do, you know, it caused Casey Kasem to have a meltdown. Oh, stop. Yep. You know something? This is a funny thing. Look, he was. Oh, that. The yeah. greatest thing that ever came out about this. If you listen to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I do. I heard your did episode. You, did you hear my thing on there? I did. With now Gilbert. Gilbert singing Shannon was the highlight of my career. <laughs> I, mean, I, want a, I, want, I want a tape of that or something, please. Well, just go on, just go on podcasts and put in Henry Gross and Roger Cook. You know, Roger, who's written more hits than anyone will let. As I say, had more hits than John Gotti. You know, he's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Gross and Roger Cook will get me to that uh, rendition of Shannon. Henry, Henry Gross and uh, Gilbert Gottfried. It's, it's called Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Pos Colossal Podcast with Henry Gross and Roger Cook and Frank I'll Stanton send you the Robert. episode, uh, Donna. <laughs> yes, Wendell, that's the worst of, That's definitely. Okay, thank I mean, you so much I mean, for I that. Can only, I can only tell you how funny. I love, listen, I'm sorry I noticed about Woodstock, but I got to tell you how much I love Gilbert Gottfried. Please. <laughs> oh, God, please I mean, do. I was, about I was Woodstock, big, of course. I was a big, oh. Gilbert, I was a big Gilbert fan. Back, I own VHSs of the thing he did when he's in the in the, that like uh, what do you call it that the thing you put on the back of your car you tow it out of what is it called a trick uh, no 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 it's like a thing you hook on your car and you pull it it's it's like a little trailer um, 
you know, they, they made those trailers. You hook it onto like, okay. a truck oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever. So he did one of those. He's in Los Angeles. He's running a newsstand. And it's a comedy special. They gave him HBO, gave him a 30 minute special. I bought the VHS that I love Gilbert. I have his books. He tells jokes that I heard in the Catskills when I was 13. <laughs> and, and, you know, he tells them very well. And, and he's just a, but what he did do, what Gilbert did is the hardest thing in show business to do as a comedian because you can name all the brilliant comedians. And who do you remember? Groucho, W.C. Fields. And you ask yourself, why do I remember the Woody Allen? Why do you remember these people? Whatever their personality, whatever they think, because they created a character. Mm -hmm. because they, be, they were walking emojis. And Gilbert, you don't have to say who he is. You, yep. Gilbert is an emoji. I can name you 20 comedians I admire and love deeply that would get lost in a crowd of comedians, not Gilbert. No. He, he, so, so Gilbert's introduction. Now, Roger Cook, for those of you who may not know, wrote Long, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. He yep. wrote, here comes that rainy day feeling again. I'd like to teach the world to sing. How far do you want me to go with this? Oh, um, anyway, <laughs> go all the way. So, so Roger, <laughs> he introduces Roger. Gilbert did these introductions that went on for five minutes. If you've ever listened to this podcast, and he, he does this and he's just and he's just and then Roger Cook wrote this and, and then he's in the Hall of Fame in England and he's the only the only Brit to be in the in the in the Hall mm. of Fame in, in the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee. And he goes down his whole list and he's talking about Roger. And then he's and then Gilbert says, you know, and these these introductions can also be used as eulogies. You know, it was great. <laughs> yeah. He goes down and then he says he goes this thing with Roger for like five minutes. He's going on. Roger did this. And Roger goes and my second guest tonight henry gross is a jew <laughs> it, was, it was the greatest moment it, you know i've been, I've been taking, I, mean, I spent time around jackie mason and who's a who's a, a, you know, a very funny you know he's very dark but you know he, he is a whatever people may think of jackie mason or what i may think he he, he was a genius level comedian yeah. I, mean, I mean this is the man that after all, the man that said, there's no bigger schmuck in this world than a Jew with a boat. <laughs> he says, you give a Gentile a boat, he sails around the world. He goes around, you give a Jew. I've never seen one Jewish boat leave the harbor. He says, he says to a Gentile, it's a mode of transportation. To a Jewish dormitory. <laughs> he said, mine sleeps six, mine sleeps 10. You know, is it, you, you can't argue with a guy like that. So he's taking me down, but nobody got me like Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> did did you ever immortality? Henry, immortality. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you ever hear um Gilbert do uh Fifty Shades of Grey reading from Fifty Shades of Grey? Oh, it's a start. Uh oh, oh, it's one Woodstock of the... obsession. <laughs> Gil Gilbert just... says, Woodstock, Woodstock, Woodstock. Don't you guys have anything else? Henry, can we sing a little of Shannon together? Yeah, and, yes, we can. And, you know, this is the thing, because I know that one day, and I don't know, maybe it'll be tonight, but, you know, when you write an idiotic melody like this when you're 25 <laughs> years old, and, and, you know, it starts, another day as it ends, you know, and then it goes up to Shannon, you know, and I always think one day I'm going to be out there and I'm going to go, <laughs> and that's it. Nothing. There'll be nothing. There'll be yeah. nothing. So we'll. How do you, how do you still hit those notes, Hen? Um, very very tight Munsingware. <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert, do you know the words? 
I have it in front of me. All right, All well, right. let Henry so we going start, and then you can come in for the second stanza. Are we going to do the oh, verse? For start at the verse, or we? Or what are we doing? Why don't you start, and then he'll fill in, and then you you can each do a stanza. Well, that's easy for yeah. you to say. You'll you'll sing up to here. I'm sure he'll tell her. Okay, and then, and then you'll and that. and then you will do the Casey Kasem part. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's. Another day is at end Mama says she's tired again No one can even begin to tell her Facebook. Now they all love it. People are apologizing for the vitriol. They're writing to me. Finally, I like that song. I don't know how it happened. It's an incredible moment in my life. They love it now. Thank you, Gilbert. You made my millennium. I can't take it. Gilbert doing a Henry Gross impersonation. I can die now. That sounded good. Simply awful. Don't, don't worry, Roger. You'll get your turn. <laughs> it's it's the only song that you don't need a guitar to sing the chorus. You need a truss. And that's our show. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast, was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Your hosts were Jack Lekensky, Johnny Hudson, Aaron Shear, Jim Shelley, and Scott Parker. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast is not associated in any way with Woodstock Ventures or any of its entities. Come and check us out on our Facebook page. The group is called Keep the Dream Flowing where we keep you updated on various things that we're doing and give you a heads up when there's a new episode coming. So check that out. On behalf of all of us here at Keep the Dream Flowing, this is Scott Parker saying thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. The countdown will begin this Sunday afternoon at 1, right here on the radio station you grew up with. Music Radio 138. Oh, fuck. What the hell's going on here? Oh, geez, well, isn't it the last hour? We got another hour to do? Geez, I thought we were almost finished. Good golly, Miss Molly. Boy, this is fucking ponderous, man. Ponderous, fucking ponderous. Hi, this is Casey Kasem. American Top 40 has moved to a new time. I hope you'll join me this Saturday morning and every Saturday morning at 2 
two. Now, we're up to our long-distance dedication. And this one is about kids and pets and a situation that we can all understand, whether we have kids or pets or neither. It's from a man in Cincinnati, Ohio, and here's what he writes. Dear Casey, this may seem to be a strange dedication request, but I'm quite sincere, and it'll mean a lot if you play it. Recently, there was a death in our family. He was a little dog named Snuggles, but he was most certainly a part of... Let's come start again. I'm coming out of the record. Play the record, okay? Please. <clears throat> See, when you come out of those up-tempo goddamn numbers, man, it's impossible to make those transitions. And then you got to go into somebody dying. You know, they do this to me all the time. I don't know what the hell they do it for, but goddamn it, if we can't come out of a slow record, I don't understand it. Is Don on the phone? Okay, I want a goddamn concerted effort to come out of a record that isn't a fucking up-tempo record every time I do a goddamn death dedication. Now, make it, and I also want to know what happened to the pictures I was supposed to see this week. This is a god, last goddamn time. I want somebody to use his fucking brain to not come out of a goddamn record that is, uh, that, that's up-tempo, and I got to talk about a fucking dog dying.